Hi, this is Robin McCauley. You are tuned in and listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another week of Focus on Metal. So this week, we welcome back once again a uh, recurring guest. That is Robin McCauley. And I was actually curious. I couldn't remember how many times Robin has been on the show. I went over onto our own FocusOnMetal.net, used the old search tab on uh, McCauley, and found out this will be Robin's fifth appearance on the show. For those of you that are numerous out there, so that is his fifth appearance, and this is show number 505. I have no idea what that means, but anyways, there it is. I continue to be a veritable fountain of useless knowledge. So back in May, Robin released his solo album, Standing on the Edge via Frontiers, and he's done quite a bit of promo on that. And we opted to, instead of doing the normal promo loop, we'd uh, hang back a little bit and see if we could talk to Robin just a uh, whole separate from it. And so that worked out really nice. Richie sat down, had a great talk with Robin, not only about the solo album, but what else has been going on with Robin over the past year. What's up with anything with uh, Shanker? And then uh, I dug down a little bit and probed a bit on the backstory of some other Macaulay Shanker history as long as he had him on the line. So a lot of great stuff with Richie and Robin this week. And instead of taking away any of that by continuing to talk, I'm going to dive into it right now. So I'm going to hand it over to Richie and Robin McCauley. Hey, Robin, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm okay. Still trying to deal with all this COVID madness like yourself. Oh, come on. It's all over, dude. It's, 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 it's done. <laughs> yeah. When is the last time, Robin, you were in Vegas? Um, my last show, Richie, was uh, Wednesday, March the 4th. And I think, I think you know, I used to drive home. Yeah. Um, after the show, I had tickets, you know, we were supposed to leave with Schenkerfest for sold out tour of Japan. I was supposed to leave on the 6th, two days later. And of course, as we know, that never happens. And, uh, Europe was sold out. All that was rescheduled. And of course, then rescheduled again. So March 4th would have been my last live performance. Holy shit. That's like forever ago. (laughs) Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you've been in L.A. since then? I've been home. I learned how to cook. <laughs> I can boil two eggs now instead of one. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, you get a little complacent, and uh, then I have a record company goes, hey, record a solo record. And I'm going, hell no. Because, <laughs> I, Robin, so, I, I spoke to you in the past about a label like Frontiers approaching you to do a solo record uh, or a project. So it was around the time of the Black Swan album. And you said... That's you, exactly you, right. Yeah, you said you'd been offered them before, but you, you hadn't really bid at them. That you, you wanted to see an end game to it, like maybe do some live shows and stuff like that. So was it the downtime that made you like reconsider it this time that you actually had the time to well, put the time and effort into it? Well, you know, uh, yes, partly... Um, you know, Black Swan came out the gate with uh, much to do, and uh, it's a great record. We got we got amazing reviews on it, and when they 
when they sort of came back at me and said, hey, you know, their exact words were, I think we should keep the momentum and you should put a solo record out before getting into the next Black Swan, which, by the way, uh, we're knee deep in right now. We're already writing and started recording already for the next Black Swan. So um, I didn't want to, to be honest, I didn't want to take anything away from the excitement that was around Black Swan. And I went, eh, I don't really want to do this. And the last time we spoke about it, I wanted to do a different type of solar record. And I went, no, you know, this is what you do. This is what people know you for. And, you know, you change it up too much and all the rest of it. So kind of sat on it again, Ricky. And then um, I gave it some more thought. And I went, okay, so what would I do? And consequently, that's why I sort of reached out to all my old cronies and to get a little bit of whatever it is I did and, and make that sort of connection again. You know, I.e. the Ground Priest stuff with Phil Lanzan and Tony Franklin. I wrote a couple of tunes with me. He introduced me to Tommy Demander. And Tommy, of course, is riding high on Alice Cooper's uh, Detroit Spaces right now because he co-wrote and co-produced it, and Tommy writes with some just amazing people, uh, but he also had that connection with uh, Jimmy Jameson from Survivor, so there was my Survivor connection, mm-hmm. and Howard, I worked with Howard at Rockfall, you know, and uh, Howard and I have a great relationship, but I I called Howard going, hey, give me a bad company song, dude, <laughs> and he just laughed, and he goes, no, I won't give you a bad company song, but I I have this idea that's like just not finished. So see what you think, do whatever you want with it. And uh, if you use it, great. So I worked it up, put it into a proper working format, wrote lyrics, melodies, send him back and rough, and he goes, huh, this is great. Is it on the record? And I went, no idea. I got to get the rest of the stuff finished first. <laughs> <laughs> Robin, you know? your relationship with Tony Franklin, does that go back to the 80s around the time of the firm? Oh my God. Um, and it doesn't go back that far, but it does go back. Tony, Tony's daughter is Tony's daughter is probably she must be twenty years of age already. And I met Tony just as his daughter was being born, and I had a project called Lead, and we we put an EP out. The guitar player was uh, who's now the Edge of Paradise guitar player, Dave Bates. And Dave and I had a thing going, and we had Tony play bass, and we had Greg Bissonette play drums just to get the songs down. And it was very, very powerful stuff, a very different direction for me. I think you can find it, probably find it on YouTube somewhere. And we tried selling it, and everybody's going, I don't hear about it on here. So people were very reluctant, people, i.e. the business, to... To have me change that, I mean, it's really stupid, you know. It's like, well, can't I do anything else except sing anytime or when I'm gone or save yourself, you know? Mm. Um, so I've known Tony all of that time, and uh, we reconnected uh, when we got into into Rock Vault, which was phenomenal. I actually saw, Rich, I saw the firm live in Wembley. Nice, nice. Tony. Tony, Tony, Chris Lade, of course, Jimmy, and uh, Paul Rogers. I mean, whew, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Robin, any particular reason why Tony didn't play on this solo album? Well, Tony and I wrote two songs. Um, I had more than a fair share of sort of mid-tempo type songs. And Tony initially was my choice to play bass on the album. And then with the stupid pandemic, uh, everything got sort of turned around. And Alessandro Silvecchio, you know, Frontiers Maestro, it was important for him to be able to work up close and personal as much as he could, because normally he lives in Florida. Now he's stuck back home in Italy and he can't leave. And he has a studio there also. And he has access, of course, to a plethora of great musicians. And the guitar player on the on Standing on the Edge is uh, just, he's just awesome. Uh, and Andrea Cerveso. But he's also, he also engineers for Alessandro. And Alessandro said to me, he goes, this guy is just awesome. He's not new. Not too many people know him, but there's a company out of the UK called Chapman Guitars that my son Casey absolutely loves. And he's got tons of uh, effects pedals from them because we would go to the NAM show on a yearly basis and all he would always go to be to the Chapman booth and and just turn it up as loud as he could. And Andrea had won many competitions when he was when he was work for Chapman. And and you know, like new guitar player, you know, budding guitar player, guitar player twenty, 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 twenty one. And so he's um he's well known in that circle. He also does some producing and engineering and upcoming bands. But he's an amazing young guitar player. So and Alessandro said to me, I'd love to use him. And then I have a great drummer here, Nicholas Papipico. And he goes, I have a ready-made band, and it'll be easier for me to work like this. And then, of course, you have a budget, you know. Mm-hmm. It doesn't allow me to, doesn't allow me to uh, you know, call in Paul Rogers for backing vocals, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And so you take it from there and you see what you got. We picked the songs we were going to work with. I rough demoed everything, wrote all the lyrics, all the all the melodies, and I sent them back. And he said, "Okay, let's go." And then, of course, I'm here. Um, I can demo at home, but I can't. I can't record real vocals at home, so I needed to find a studio for that. Um, and then we found a studio pretty local to me. It was recommended by Jeff Scott Soto because he did some work there, uh, also for Frontiers. And so Andy Zuckerman was the engineer, and uh, it was easy peasy. It was just me and him. All I saw was his back as he wore his mask throughout the entire session. So, <laughs> it's true. And then he took his mask off right at the end. We, we took a selfie, which I still have. It was supposed to go in the back. Of the, it was supposed to go in the back of the record, but he didn't. And um, that's how we did it. Um, we worked basically with what we had and and it came out great you know for something that i was reluctant to start i'm very happy with it and we charted last week on billboard yeah that's right robin i want to ask you about a little bit more about alessandro del vecchio he's more or less the the house band guy for frontiers Mm -hmm. that he'll write for a lot of different projects that are on the label now yes the, the label knows has a niche market in the melodic rock scene right so we we know what the albums are really going to sound like but you've worked with them now I'm, i want to pose this question to you and you can tell me whether i'm off the mark or not um right does he have all these songs already written and he's waiting to see i'm going to give box a songs to robin mccauley i'm going to give 
box B songs to Ronnie Romero for Sunstorm and then box C is going to go to Revolution Saints. Like, does he have a bank of songs or does he write when he finds out who's who's actually going to be singing on them? I actually don't really know the answer to that. But what I do know is when it was discussed that, because he makes the Black Swan record, so I was familiar with him. And I was also familiar with when Frontiers made the decision for him to be their sort of their go-to guy because there was a time that he wasn't. You know, he was he was doing a lot of work for them. So then they took him officially on board. And um, I don't think, how do I answer this? I don't know how anybody can have that much time because, you know, he, he, he works. I think you can pick any name out of the Frontier hat. And he seems to work with every one of them. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to be very, very prolific, and you must never, ever, ever sleep if you can actually write a library of that much of material in so many different genres to suit so many different bands, and most of all, so many different singers. And Ronnie Romero, who's on the new Shanker, of course, this is Ronnie's kind of first trip down melodic hard rock playing. And, and he's doing a phenomenal job on it, you know? In fact, he was getting slammed a lot because he was doing too much, almost, because he, he, he like Alexander, was on one too many projects. You yeah. Know? And, and he was getting a lot of... And he was very upset about it uh, publicly. So I know that when I came on the scene with Alexandro, he goes, what are we doing? And I said, well, Frontiers wants, you know, they want more of what, what they, they know me for. And I said, I'm going to reach out to Phil and Howard and Tommy. So I'm going to gather songs from them, and then the rest is in your lap. And he goes, I'll just, I'll just send you a bunch of songs. So at the end of the day, he sent me at least a dozen songs. And I'm thinking, shit, how does he write that fast? You know? <laughs> no, no lyrics, no melodies. He left all that to me. So to answer your question, if he had that much of a, a library, then, then he's He's still a better man than I, I thought because, I mean, there's, there are other writers on my record, not just me, that co-wrote with him. So he has other writers that, that are connected to the studio. So perhaps they continue uh, to write and create catalogs so that he can go, oh, let's try this, let's try that. But I picked, I had the choice of um, a dozen or more that he sent me. I had the choice of working on what I wanted to work on. And what what really uh, tweaked my ear, and and the rest I didn't work. I sent it back to my wife. Nah, it's not my kind of stuff. I don't want to do that. Yeah. And and, and so it put, it put me into that sort of bag, if you will, Richie, of like going, ah, you know, my my initial statement to Frontiers was, why would you want more of what I've already done? Because to me, it's just boring, and I I like to I like to experiment a little bit, you know. And they went, no, it's, it's a good idea because people are used to hearing a certain thing. I mean, of course, you can move a little left and center, you know. But I picked what I picked. And, um, you know, I have a thing with Jeff Filson in, in Black Swan. But when Revan himself are sending me music, I said, I'm never going to come back with what you think I'm going to come back with. <laughs> <laughs> because I have, no idea where, I have no idea where my head is going to be at the time, you know. Thankfully, it's... Uh, you know, with a little tweaking, it seems to work. So, same was for standing on the edge. I just took it. I was at home. You know, you're watching the the shit the shit show on the news, and 
And you take what you can, and I just spat out whatever lyrics came to me. I'm not politically minded. I, I hate all of that stuff. There's enough people making idiots of themselves. Mm. And um, and so I uh, I just write what comes to, to me on the spot. And if you were to ask me now what certain songs mean, I'm going, I have no idea what I was thinking at the time, but there you have it. Mm. You know? <laughs> when Alessandro sent you the songs, did he send them all yeah. to you at the one time, or did he send a couple at a time? No, I got a big old batch all at once, and I was overwhelmed. I was going, what? <laughs> I, I can't listen to all that, you know. And I remember it drove me nuts in the beginning, because, you know, there was kind of a deadline, and then there wasn't a deadline. So, yeah. Um... It just meant I had to go through everything to listen to it and then just sit through and go, okay, okay, okay. And when I'm writing lyrics and melodies, I spend days, weeks sometimes. And I listen to every single song, I don't know, 100 plus times before I even an idea. And I have lots of ideas. As I'm listening first time, there's lots of stuff flying through my head and I'll be jotting down ideas and that sort of stuff. And I almost never keep anything. And I just work it up. And then suddenly, I, I write a lot in my sleep, believe it or not. I've been well known to get up in the middle of the night because I have a, a lyric that's raging in my head. And I have, to, I have to jot it down somewhere or I'll forget it by the time I actually do get out of bed. Mm. I do that a lot. And I'll have notes all over the place attached to lots of different songs until I actually nail it, you know? Mm. Um and then it'll always be a rock, waiting for more changes. And I'm, I'm, I'm forever changing a lyric and a melody right up to the time that I'm recording it. And so even after it's recorded, I might listen back when it's done, and I go, ah, wish I had done that, you know? <laughs> so that's just, that's, that's just how I work. So, Rob, Robin, would you consider yourself a perfectionist? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm my own worst enemy, I can tell you that. Okay. I'm, I'm never... I'm never completely happy because because I always believe there's something better you can do, you know. And I know I know my limitations, Richie. I know what I'm capable of doing, mm-hmm. and I always try I always try to push that envelope a little bit. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Because the voice is, you know, I just you can't plug it in and turn it up. And and some days you're in the mood for it, and some days you're not. So. Um, you know, I could get a call from the studio. Hey, I have some time. You want to give it a shot? And I'm going, I'm, I'm just, I'm not feeling it. You know, you can't just turn it on and off. I, I can't anyway. Mm. I have to, I have to get myself psyched up. And when I'm psyched up and I have a deadline, I'm ready because this prep work that I do, and I'm totally anal about the whole thing, you know. <laughs> okay. Robin, wh- but it works for me. It works for me. So, yeah. You know, everybody everybody has their little idiosyncrasies, I suppose, you know. Mm. What, what was the hardest song to write on this album for you? Oh, God. You know, they're all hard. They're all hard, <laughs> before, you, they're all hard before you start getting into it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm well known for the power ballad been in my wheelhouse, you know. The power ballad on this one, um, first song that I actually directly wrote for my, my own wife. Because, you know, when you're writing ballads over the years, Richie, and you have a wife, and you go, is that about me? How come you never write a song about me? <laughs> 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 Who's that? Who are you talking about? <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so uh, um, when it came to this one, I went, you know, it's a solo record. I'm, I'm going to dedicate this just to, to Gina. 
So late December is, is actually kind of based on a true story because it's December that we actually met. And um, when I played it to her, I didn't even tell her. I said, you know, she goes, oh, my God, that is so awesome. That sounds really familiar. And I went, it should. <laughs> and that was a tough one because it modulates at least twice in the song, all the way right to the end. And I, 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 I was texting Alessandro, and I'm going, he's trying to bust my ass here because, you know, it just keeps modulating into a higher key. And he goes, yep, yep, you can do it. And I left it till the very end, believe it or not, because I went, this is going to be a ball breaker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> An absolute ball breaker. And at the end of the day, it was, you know, I, I was so familiar with it. Just, you know, we just did it. We just did it and uh, turned out good. Yeah. That's <laughs> thankful. The, the the song I really like on it because it sounds a little bit different is Chosen Few, the one you wrote with Tommy Denander. Ah, yeah, you know, it's it's great, it's great. Tommy sent me in about four tracks and Do You Remember and then Chosen Few came out and I it just had that uh, it just had that ACDC type of feel about it. Yeah. And 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 I went ah, that's the shit. And and and. I, I I didn't even have I didn't have to fight you know to get that one on there. I went, this is this is going on. This is my record. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> mm. This is going on there, and uh, a lot of people love the track because it's simple, straight ahead, and uh, it just it just gets on with the business. You know, yeah, I really like it. Mm. Thanks. Yeah, I, I'm going to bring up one more song, Robin. Yeah, and because you're a friend of mine, I'd hope you take this the right way. Um, of course I will. Runaway sounds like something Ireland had enter into the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> and let me just back that up by saying, and so it should. <laughs> <laughs> like you, 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 you get what I'm saying when I say that. Well, well spotted, Richie. And because I had this conversation with my little sister, right? And who doesn't really remember much about our, our, our growing up. Where I was born, where we lived... Our house, from the back of our house, we we used to, <laughs> I'm going to take you back now, we used to overlook about 80 acres, one big field. That's a big field, right? Mm-hmm. About 80 acres. And we were surrounded by racehorses. We were st- uh, uh, stud grooms, um, stables, completely surrounded. There was horses in my life every single day growing up. They were everywhere. My father was a soldier, God rest him, and he became a, a stud groom for a very big racing stable, and he worked in, in a beautiful castle in County Lee called Killeen Castle. Killeen Castle turned out many racehorses, and our house backed up onto about 80 acres, and we would probably, you know, we would always head out across the field because what else are you going to do in the countryside, right? Yep. And living in Ireland, of course, it pissed down rain every 10 seconds, right? <laughs> yep. Right? Yeah. And so we'd be way across the field, and I'm sure you've seen this, but you could see the rain coming. Yeah. You could see it coming, and we would just go hell-bent for leather and see if we could actually race the rain back home. Of course, we didn't. And then we got our asses kicked because we were soaking. And <laughs> the time we hit that fence in the backyard. And so when the music came in, it was instant. And I had this, this sort of euphoric almost feeling of standing, looking out across that field. 
in the back of my house. And I just, the lyrics just went, there it was. And I had this grandiose vision in my, in my head of it being some sort of a movie soundtrack. And that's kind of how I wrote it. So you picked up on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it's about. That's exactly what it's about. Your vision, uh, that never came to me. (laughs) I didn't go that far. But I did think movie soundtrack, how would I do it? How would I do it? If this was on the end titles of the movie, I thought this would be really cool. And I added the rain, you know, at the, at the top end. And, you know, after a few beers or whatever you're drinking, stick a pair of headphones, good headphones, and uh, turn out the lights and listen to that. And it will, it will capture you in an entirely different way. Okay. Than just than than just listening to it cold off the C D or off off the vinyl. Yeah. Headphones on, lights out and drink in your hand and uh and turn it up and, and you'll be absolutely engulfed. Nice. That's my feeling. That's that's nice. how I wrote it. That's how I wrote it. That's what I wanted to capture. And uh I'm I'm I love that song. Mm. I know it's a it's a it's a departure, but I purposely did that and I went we got to make a left turn here somewhere so that everything's not the same. Well, and, I, uh, I think you're right, Robin, because a solo record, you can put on a lot of stuff that people are associate with you, but you, you do want to go a little bit left field on a couple of tracks as well. You don't want everything to be the same. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm not going to write this for solo record. It's not going to be an NSG record. It's not going to be a Black Swan record. It's, you know, it's not going to be heavy metal, you know? It's not going to be... I don't. It's not going to be any any of those sort of monikers. It's just going to be something that I now have been told I have a chance to do, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try and create it like a book form, a beginning, a middle, and an end. So it's like a little story from beginning to end. And yeah. Of course, the uh, you know they the label called me and they said, hey, what do you want on the cover of the record? And and I said I don't want me on it. That's for sure. I do not want me on it. So they said give it a, give it a give it a thought. Let me know what you want. And standing on the edge, I think was the first track that I actually wrote lyrics and melodies to. And I I immediately you know I was a big Batman. I love comic book uh, um, heroes and all of that sort of stuff. And I love Batman. I love Gotham and all of that. And and I started thinking because of the lyrics that I used. Or standing on the edge, if I was a gargoyle in the midst of this pandemic and I'm looking down from above, what would I see? And I could I could use many expletives to to uh, <laughs> oh. I'll use one. I'll use a couple. One major fuck up. That's what I could <laughs> see. You know? That's what I could see, and and that's kind of how I took the artwork and the song. And I went, what a mess! What a mess! We're in a pandemic. We're killing each other. We're burning the place down. Yeah. Just going, we're going nuts. What the hell is the matter here? You know, hmm. and it brought out a, it brought out a side that I went, wow, man. And then people were posting stuff, and I'm going, you know what, guys? A lot of you guys are going to eat this shit further down the road, which you've never said a half of this stuff because a lot of people showed their colors and who they really were in the midst of all this, and it did a number of things. Apart from making people very sick, you know. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if that's what it was, but people were a lot more sick than they realized mm. in more ways than one. Yeah. In more ways than one. Yeah. So, anyway, I leave it at that. <laughs> so, so, Robin, I, I, I want to go back a little bit. Um, how long did you tour with MSG with, with Whitesnake? On, was it for the 87 record, wasn't it? Yes, we, uh, 
with Whitesnake, we unfortunately, well, it started out where we were supposed to do all of Europe, especially we were supposed to start in Germany. And um, I don't want to be misquoted here, but I know that David had an ex-wife who was German. And I think for some, <laughs> for some reason, we weren't able to uh, be in Germany. Or, or he couldn't be in Germany. Okay. The point. The, the only, uh, so Germany the, was Germany was pulled, and we did all of the UK shows. This is Michael Schenker from Scorpions here of all MSG and Temple of Rock. You are listening to Focus on Metal. Okay, I'm just wondering, uh, with Tony Catane passing away, did, did you ever meet her when you were out with White Snake? Yeah, she was on, she was she, she was on the tour. Okay. Yeah, yeah, she was on that tour. Yeah, she would sit up. Uh, Sitting up the stage left or right almost every single night. Yeah. Okay. Did you get a chance to meet her at all? Yeah, we met her. We met her. You know, you, you, we didn't get into conversations with her, but of course, we saw her all the time. Okay. So hard to miss. Hard to miss with that great hair and just. Mm. She was an amazing, amazing looking woman back then. God rest her dear soul. And and uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got to uh, talk to Vivian Campbell for about an hour and a half, and I'm I saw sure your post. Yes. I'm sure you um you spent a lot of time with him, talk talk fellow oh Irishman. God. Oh my god. And you know, I always take the Vivian, I went, How did you just leave Dio and you just walk straight into uh in the white snake? You know? Yeah. And we always used to take the Vivian he just segued from one amazing band into another amazing band and then on it Death Leopard you know? And he goes, no, don't be the look of the Irish. And I went, you're not Irish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, oh, that's harsh, Robin. That's harsh. <laughs> yeah. Well, he used to call me. He used to, every time he would see me, he goes, there comes the orange man. And I went, yeah, you, <laughs> you wish. <laughs> and that's true. That's yeah. True. That's yeah. True. So, Robin. Here Robin. Comes the here comes the orange man. <laughs> So, so Robin, I want I want to spend a few minutes talking about the self-titled uh, MSG album that came out thirty years ago, if you can believe that. Um, oh, how old am I? <laughs> so, I, I when I, I've spoken to you about perfect timing and save yourself, and when we talked yeah. about perfect timing, Andy Johns did it. You weren't really a fan of the sound on it, but you were a big fan of, of the sound on Save Yourself with Frank Filippetti. I'm just wondering right. why you didn't do the whole record, the third album. Why did you not do the whole album with him? Um, that is a most excellent question. Um, I remember I wanted to do it with Frank. We were managed by uh, McGee Entertainment, Doc McGee, who of course takes care of all the Kiss stuff. He also used to manage um, Motley Crue, used to manage uh, Kid Row and Bon Jovi, and then later Scorpions. So we were in the thick of all of that. And um, it, was, it was it was great. And then there was a management change. There was a management change, and they they had access to Kevin Beamy. I love the man. They had access to Kevin, and Kevin was the man that ended up producing the record. And we were a little bit concerned that it was going to be um, too polished. We wanted to stick with we wanted to stick with what we thought we had fixed on the Save Yourself album. And um, I always remember thinking, you know, guys, if you break out your calendar or if you're any sort, I'm not good at math, but, you know, this is a six-year 
process here, we only have three records. What's wrong with this picture, you know? And so we come to the very last one, and um, Kevin was slotted to, to produce. And then um, Michael and I were here writing and demoing stuff. And, you know, we were talking about about the band scenario. And Michael said, it's going to be, maybe we should do something different. It's going to be very expensive bringing everybody over here from the, you know, the Macaulay Shanker setup would be Rocky and Steve and Bodo. And I used to, uh, I used to hang every couple of weeks or whatever we were around. I used to hang in the club in Hollywood called the Spice Club. It wasn't called Spice for nothing, let me tell you. And um, I got to become good friends with uh, Jeff Poulsen and James Kotak. And uh, I loved the Kingdom Come record when it came out. I, I thought, wow, this is this is great. I don't care what people are saying about, you know, how Zeppelin-esque it is. I didn't care about all that. So people will always say something about something about something. So I became good friends with James and, and Jeff. And so I, I said to Michael, I, I have the best rhythm section in the country right now if, if we're up for it. And he goes, oh, you know those guys? So we took them into the rehearsal room, needless to say. Um, it was a no-brainer, and so they were on the on the last record, and that was that was good because at least we got a little bit of a, a an edge to it. The production is cleaner, of course, because Kevin does that sort of stuff. And I don't know what else I can tell you. Yeah, it took us a couple of years to fix what we weren't happy with on say uh, on perfect timing, um, and we thought we had fixed it on save yourself, and now we're back into what would be the the third and last record in in that scenario hmm. how did the three guys take it when they were told that they weren't <laughs> going to be on the album because rocky's got two co-writes on it and he, he didn't get to play on the album yeah um well they knew they had been writing the song they understood that uh on a on a uh, a basis truly based around budgets that uh it, it it was becoming the new norm really for people to mix and change. Nobody wants to be told you're not in a band anymore, you know. And it wasn't really it wasn't really like that, cut and dried, because had there been a tour, it's quite likely that we would have used the band, you know, in Europe. But it never we never toured the album because as we released that, the world fell apart for eighties rock music, you know. Because mm. uh, Seattle made a Seattle made itself very well known. Uh, both from the grunge and the alternative uh, aspect of the, the new change in music. It's a bit like uh, a bit like when punk kicked in. It was like, see ya, go away now. And so, yeah, we never got a chance to, to take that out in the road. So, yeah, I think they were okay. I mean, you know, I love I love Rocky. Steve, and I've seen Rocky many times out in the Schenker Fest, and of course Steve, he was in Schenker Fest, so that was never a problem. Yeah. Um, so when you were when you were recording the, those songs, did you all try and record it live as a band with you doing scratch vocals, or or did you record the, the rhythm section separate? How how did you do it? Yeah, well we 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 rehearsed at great lengths. I remember, and that was that was an awesome time. I remember it was just it sounded awesome in the room. But but like everything, you know, everybody likes to to uh, isolate. Isolate the uh, all the instruments because it's easier for mixing, and and every everything was separate, 
you know, separate drums. I mean, we, we'd all be in there, but but uh, they'd only keep the drums on the track and or the bass on the track, you know. Um, no, we didn't. We didn't record it live. Okay. We could have done. We could have done because James and uh, at least the rhythm section because they were like solid. I mean, solid. But you know, if there's a if there's a flunker in there, you need to be able to go in and, and fix it or not. If that's what you want to do, you know, it's like eh, leave it. It's like you know, a lot of people do that too, and it's got a kind of vibe to it, you know. Frank Filippetti, when I'd be recording with him, he'd always go. No, please don't don't change that. It has a vibe. The vibe is so much better than perfection, you know. And he goes, "Don't kill the vibe. Always keep it." He always told me he used to say the same thing to uh, Lou Graham because he did all of the form of four, all of that sort of stuff. And um, he said Lou would go, "No, let's fix that," or Mick would go, "No, change that vocal line," and Frank would go, "It's it's got a vibe. You got to go with the vibe. The vibe is what makes it." Hmm. And uh, so we would keep that as much as we could, you know. Don't don't kill the vibe. The vibe can be the magic of the song, you know. Robin, something that you usually didn't plan. So yeah, Robin, were you feeling the pressure on the third record, you and Michael, because you'd done two albums and they they hadn't really pro- probably sold as many as you you or the label would have thought. Was there any? push coming from the label that we got to have a hit song on this, we got to get on the radio? 100%. In fact, we had submitted the whole record and um, in our department came to us and they went, we don't hear the single. And then they sent me away to work with uh, Jesse Harms, who was Sammy Hager's keyboard player. Yeah. And uh, that's when Jesse and I wrote uh, When I'm Gone. Didn't really make any difference in the changes for record, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was uh, it was uh, oh my god! I think it was a P1 playlist for about 16 weeks. It certainly got the exposure, that's for sure. Hmm. You know, and, and a great and a great song, if I may say so. Yeah, both, uh, both on record and a great song. Uh, when we played it on Plug, just a beautiful song, mm. really good song. Um, that- there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff that falls into place. You know, everybody has to be on the same page. Yeah. You know, the label, the label, the 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 people who work to to promote the records for the label, the the radio stations. It's all of this. So many factors. For it just, you know, you can have a great song, but if nobody hears it. Nobody knows it's there. So there's a lot of stuff. I, I learned that very quickly. Mm. It doesn't go, you know, it, it, there's so many factors, so many factors. And when you have a label that's totally on it, absolutely on it, working it, you know, sometimes really shit, shit songs have come out. And you're going, why was that ever a hit? You know? Yeah. It's because it's so overexposed. That that's all you hear, and it, and then it becomes subliminal almost. You go, huh, I suppose it's not that bad. You start convincing yourself that it's really great, you know. Mm. Mm. Um, I'm looking at who sang background vocals on this, and I'm wondering why Jeff Pilson didn't do any vocals. Yeah, I don't really know because he's a great singer. Yeah, say yeah, and and um, that's a great question. I, I really don't know why. I guess we never thought about it really. Yeah, that's a good question. I'll ask him. I'll be seeing him this week. I'll be seeing him this week. I do. Well, you know, you know, there's another just, just 
segues into something else. Uh, you know, Matt Starr is a great singer. Yeah. Not a lot of Matt's a great singer. So um, after the last record, I had told Jeff, and he goes, I didn't know Matt could sing. And I went, yeah, Matt's a great singer. So he goes, well, he'll be on the next one. And I went, yes, he will. You know, my own son sang on the first one, on the first black one. Yeah, that's right. Casey sang, Casey sang four, five, six tracks on there, yeah. Mm. Yeah, he's on, he's already on my case. He goes, I'm singing on the new one, don't I, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I went, Jeff, I said, Jeff Piston said you are. And he goes, what, you didn't say? And I said, no, Jeff said you were. Oh dear. Yeah. So so Robin, when this record came out, um yeah. was there a planned tour that didn't happen? Which record are we talking about now? The the self titled MSG album, the last one. Oh, 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 oh. Um was there a tour? I think there was something that we were supposed to do in Japan. Um was it that record? Yeah, I think there might have been something for Japan. Because I think Michael went on to do a, re, a UFO thing. And I think there was something that we were supposed to tour. And I, I seem to remember he wanted an enormous amount of money or something for it. But it wasn't possible anyway, whatever happened. Yeah. If there was, we didn't do it. So, <laughs> That's all I can remember. So, so the only yeah. shows you did for this record were the unplugged ones? Yes. Okay. Yes. And Which was... Some of my best time, I think it was just a great time. Yeah, yeah. So, w- would you, if you, if you went out as a band on a on a tour for this at Electric, did you want to bring yeah. ja- did you want to bring James and Jeff out as the rhythm section, or was that was that just a non runner? I don't think we ever we ever got to that point. But I mean, Jeff would have been busy with ducking, you know. Yeah. Um, so again, again, we would be back into a scenario of depending on availability. You know? mm. And and if we wanted Jeff and, or if we wanted James and they weren't available, then we would either have to, I mean, we'd, we'd either have to go for, for guys here in the States uh, because we could rehearse and get it done, or we would have to then relocate or bring everybody into the States from Europe to rehearse and then take off for Japan. I mean, logistically, you know, there's always a budget. There's, there's, it doesn't matter who you are. There is always a budget. And you can be worth millions and millions, but there's still a budget, and everything has to fall into place, you know. Mm. Um, by the by, the time you're done with production and all of that sort of stuff, so it's so far back. I don't remember all of the details, but I think there was a Japanese tour that fell through, um, and then we ended up with the uh, with the unplugged tour, and uh, we were out for almost nine months with the unplugged tour. Wow, that's a long time. I can tell you that it was nine months because I had just leased a house that I paid a fortune for and only saw it for a couple of months. (laughs) 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 I remember, I can look at my bank statements and I can absolutely tell you. (laughs) 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 That probably wasn't a good decision. Actually, I will tell you who's got I'll tell you whose house it was as well. Here's one for you. Yeah, it was Lisa Marie Presley's house. Oh, nice. Yeah, and yeah, nice. It was a nice leasing fee. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I should have bought the house, by the way, but I did. I uh, I did not take the good advice of my then uh, music accountant. Mm, he said, okay. "Buy, buy it, buy it." 
And you don't have to limit it by it. Just buy it. Please buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I think she even said at one point, I'll buy it. I'll buy it for you. <laughs> mm. Robin. Yeah, that's stupid. I Stupid Irish guy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Robin, have I, have you ever played any of the songs from the third record live as, like, uh, electric? Like, did you ever do any on the Shanker Fest? Shoot, you know we never did. Yeah. I, that's, I, that's also an excellent question, and I don't know why, because there's some great songs on there. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. There's some great songs on there, and, and he always sticks, almost always, to the Save Yourself records. Always. You know, we we, we would do uh, Save Yourself. Uh, um, actually, Perfect Timing. Perfect Timing. The only one from Perfect Timing that he ever picked uh, was... Um, what the hell is it called? I can't even remember. Give me your love. But, love is not no, a game. No, no, love's not a game. We would always do that, yeah. Mm. And that's a huge song live, believe it or not. Yeah. yeah. He would he would pick that one. Um and we had no time for losers from Perfect Timing. Ah. Okay. Um, which was which was kind of a throwaway because that was the song that Michael gave to me uh when I was auditioning. And he gave me a cassette, uh, at the end of a very, very, very long day of rehearsing. And he said, we'll start at noon tomorrow, and if you have a chance to listen to this and maybe come up with an idea. And I remember it was like 3 o'clock in the morning or something, and we were starting back again at noon. And I'm going, you know what? You know what, German? <laughs> you stay up all night. You do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I was, I was so belligerent when I got up for breakfast in the morning that uh, I took on a pair of headphones and I went, I'll show you. And I just slapped that together so fast. And then I came in and Rudolph actually said to me, you know, we did our, our, our I know that the last day of, of the MSC uh, auditions was, was me covering Gary's songs and seeing what I could do. And because, you know, that was part of the whole audition thing. First you do the writing, see how that works out with you. And then uh, you'd record that. And then you'd learn past catalog. And so we were into the past catalog, and then Rudolph says, oh, by the way, did you write something so they song? And I went, yes, I did. And he goes, oh, you did? <laughs> and he said, let me hear it. And I said, well, you run the tape. Why don't you just run it, and I'll record it just like it is. And we did, and they just started laughing, and they went, great. And that was the end of the story. And then it got picked and was on perfect timing with almost no changes. <laughs> wow. wow. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So, Robin, when it all ended with Michael the first time around after this album and the unplugged record, were you on good terms with Michael then? Was it amicable when it split? I think it was. I mean, it, it had reached its crescendo, no pun intended. There was really nowhere for the band to go. Yeah. Um, I mean, there wasn't. I mean, you have to you have to face it. There was nowhere for the band to go because it was kind of the end of '92. The Unplugged was a, a huge amount of fun. I think we were one of the first bands to record on the now new DAT tape, right? And we had a whole rig out there. What is it? It was it was an awesome sound, and we mixed it, and we we had something pretty decent. Uh, MTV was all unplugged. MTV was just going down the rat hole because it was no longer really MTV anymore. And then 
you know, all of the bands started coming out of Seattle. I mean, that's what it was. It was just everywhere. So it, it was it was moving around from grunge into alternative, and, and lyrically everything was very dark, and it was a different sound, great sound, but very different and very different than what we were doing. So there was nowhere to go. And and I not to use them as an example because I can tell you they're huge MSG fans, but I remember Metallica. They cut all their hair off. I am in intense pain, Pinky. I remember it was like, what? What have you guys done? And they cut all their hair, and they all had short hair, and they were doing this sort of. We always used to say they were doing this kind of blend in, you know, mm -hmm. like all the newer, all the newer bands, and you know, there's an old adage, you know, the suit don't make the man, you know. So getting a haircut didn't change the music, you know. Um, it just changed the, the visual aspect of things. I mean, they, they can laugh at me because, you know, they, did, they didn't suffer. They did suffer a little bit in the beginning, but they stuck to their guns. And uh, God, we, know, we all know what happened there. And likewise with uh, Grunge and Alternative. Give me a handful of bands right off the top of your head from both genres that really made it all the way through the haze. Not too many. No. Not yeah. too many. Not too many. I, I can only think of two big grungers. You know, you can think of Nirvana, Soundgarden, and, and Pearl Jam. Give yeah. More. I can't think of any more. No, right? that's about, well, Alice in Chains, but they were different. Excuse me, Alice in Chains, yeah. Yeah. So, did you stay in contact with Michael at all in the 90s? Like, was there years went by where you, you, you didn't see each other or talk to each other? Well, initially there was because I stayed. I've been here for 33 years. And Michael went back to Europe, and he was living between uh, the UK and Germany. And so he was moving around doing different things. He did a contraband thing that lasted not very long. So he moved around, and, and so initially there was no contact. And then he would be, uh, he would be slotted uh, to play a NAM show. You're familiar with the NAM shows, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The NAM, NAM shows, right? So he'd be slotted to play the NAM show. He called me. And because I'm here. And he goes, Hey, you want to see the NAM show with me? And I'd come in and I'd sing the NAM show. We did the NAM show one time. We had Robbie Crane on, on, on uh, bass. We had Leslie West from Mountain up there on guitar. We had uh, Warren D. Martini from Rat up on stage with Brian Tishy's first outing up on stage. So he was using lots of different people to create an interesting show. But I sang the show. And then right at that point, my God, that was. I was sort of a few years later from 92, 90, maybe 98 or something. Um, there was speculation that, you know, we'd be getting back together again because in those short few years, which is all of that grunge and alternative was disappearing again. Mm. People were going, well, that didn't last very long, you know, and I'll bring back the 80s music. The 80s music never really went away. I always used to say the dinosaurs just went grazing for a little bit, you know, <laughs> and had a good time, and they were just in the background, you know. They were out there on that 80-acre field grazing. <laughs> <laughs> they were all in County Mead, Robin, were they? <laughs> the field was big enough for all of us. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and so that's where we were. And, uh, you know, I would do these shows. And then in 2012, with Michael here in the States, and yet again, there was more speculation. Um, and we had on base, that's where we have the, the most wonderful man, um, Elliot Rubinson, who actually was the owner 
of, of D drums and also of being guitarists that Michael continues to use. Huh. And Elliot would just be bored sitting in the office, and he was a player first and foremost. So he would come out and play on the tour. And there was more speculation then in 2012 that uh, after that tour, that um, Michael and I would reunite. And it was never in the plan. It was just, there's no reason why we can't do it. We all, we, I know the song, he knows the song. So it just went on like that until um, four years ago, I guess it is now, in Shankerfest. And in the middle, of course, I had five, six years with, with Survivor. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I had my, my kids. And I, I pulled the plug, no pun intended yet again. Um, I pulled the plug and I, I took the back seat on the business because I wanted to be uh I wanted to be home with the boys and see the walk. And uh that was a a very conscious decision on my behalf. Good for you, Robin. And, Good for you. Yeah, it was. And when um and I missed my son Jamie's first steps because I was actually in Japan doing, wow. doing uh doing some, some shows for that. Uh, business as usual CD, believe it or not. I missed Jamie's first steps and I went, I was completely, I I went, ah, oh, are you kidding me? I, was, I, I hated it. I just hated myself for it. And I came back and I said to Gina, that's it. I'm off the road. She panicked and she said, what are you going to do? That's all you do. Mm. And I went back into college. I went back into college. I got into computer graphics and ended up for 16 years or something as a senior production artist for a uh, um, hair and skin manufacturing company. Nice. In charge of also, in charge of also screening. And I'm proud of it because I had a real paycheck for a lot of musicians trying to resurrect themselves out of that sort of 80s thing. They couldn't give themselves away. I would get calls all of the time. Can you do my album cover? Can you help me with this? Dude, I'm so proud of you. I don't have a paycheck. How? You have a paycheck. And I'm going, well, you just have to bury your pride, you know, and put your priorities in place. Yeah. And throughout that period, um, the old voice from 1994, from Business as Usual, came back on the scene. Frankie Sullivan, he goes, are you ready to do this now? <laughs> and, uh, my wife actually would tell me on a daily basis, did you ever get hold of Frankie? You ever answer those emails? And I would say, nope, because I know what he wants. Wouldn't it be just like courteous for you to sort of say, hey, I know what you want, go away. <laughs> <laughs> and and then, of course, I, I ended up with Survivor, which was, again, perfect for me because it was just a weekend warrior thing. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, Robin... Is Raiding the Rockfall going to start again? Have you had word? Um, we've had official word that yes, they want to. Uh, want, they will bring it back when we don't. We don't have a definitive on that because um, Vegas is still undergoing changes. You know, when we left the Hard Rock, the Hard Rock is now officially a Virgin Hotel, uh, Las Vegas. So that Hard Rock is gone. Rio that we we uh, left has since been bought out as well. Uh, some of my friends that worked uh, at Paris and Caesars, their rooms after some 17 years or something have now been let go um, because there is that we are restructuring. That's what the, 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 they're being told. Um, so we would have to move into a new room. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of rooms available. The uh, question is when? Just when? Yeah. Uh, because, you know, we... we uh, we uh, we were almost up to 
almost 1,500 shows, Richie. Wow. Amazing. Amazing, yeah. Wow. So, know that the, what they call them, there's a great group in Vegas called the, uh, the uh, Loyals of the Radio Rock Ball. They've been out there petitioning and, and doing all sorts of stuff because they want the show back. Um, so, yeah. Um, that's the plan, Sam. So what about shows other than Raiding the Rockfall? Have you anything concrete in the in the in the works, or is it just you got to wait a couple of months to see what's going to happen? Yeah, I don't I don't have anything I couldn't I couldn't tell you right now. Yeah, um, I will tell you that the, the Winger Boys they'll be out very busy already, and Foreigner will be out there very busy, and we will get this new Black Swan done, and um, hopefully. Hopefully festivals will really start opening up. And I, Jeff and I had a long talk. I think that would be the perfect forum for a Black Swan introduction. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be perfect because, you know, plenty of people in the same place at the same time. One of the crews, and, uh, one of the crews is Robin of the Ideal. Yeah, it would. So we can introduce the band that way. Um, again, nothing planned but talked about. Yeah. Mm. So, Robin, where can people... Get in, get a copy of the album, and, and get in touch with you. Do you want to give out all the social media? Um, yes, you uh, you can find me on my Robin McCauley official on Facebook. You'll see all the posts uh, for for standing on the edge. You'll see all of the links to Frontiers uh, Records SRL. You'll see all the links to YouTube and all and any information you so desire, except where I sleep and when. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robin, always a pleasure talking to you. Likewise, Rich. At some stage, I'll, I'll see you out on the road somewhere. Yes, you will. Let's make a plan. We will. Plan. We will. So take yeah. care of yourself, Robin. God bless you, my friend. All right, God take care. You. All right, bye. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And there you go. Everything you wanted to know about what's going on with Robin McCauley. And again, you might want to check out that solo album. You can head up to the uh, Frontiers store and get pick up a copy of Standing on the Edge. I also believe they have some uh, limited pressing vinyl on there. I think some crystal vinyl and maybe some black vinyl. And I know that recently, actually, Frontiers did a whole bunch of uh, kind of new limited releases of things they've released prior, like Rev Saints and a few other bands as well, all on limited vinyl. So uh, head up to the Frontier store and check that out, or you can pick up uh, Standing on the Edge even up on Amazon or anywhere else that you normally get your music. And as I mentioned, you know, at the beginning of the show, although websites aren't really the big thing these days, it's all about Facebook and Instagram and all that crap. Uh, Focus on Metal does have its own website. We've had it for you know 11 damn years. And uh, recently revamped over the last year or so. And uh, I urge you to you can check that out. You can either go to focusonmetal.net or focusonmetalpod.com and check out the website up there. And it's always good if you want to know if somebody's been on the show that now the new site has full search functionality, which is actually what I use today to figure out that Robin's been on the show five times. So uh, if you want to check that out, you want to check out all of our past episodes or at least what I've made available up there, you can definitely go there. There's more episodes up there than you'll find on iTunes or anywhere else because that is where the official Focus on Metal episode vault resides. And it's also where you can catch all of our special project episodes as well. So things like the Strange Highways one, Little Mountain Sound, and Kerrang! Magazine, all those projects are all up there, all nicely grouped together now with the new menuing system and all that good stuff. So again, check it out. You might like it. 
So for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as always, have a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.